one of the um, fascinating things on YouTube that a lot of people watch um, is called the, it was originated with the Stanford University Marshmallow Experiment. And these videos have gone viral. And the, I think the actual original Stanford Marshmallow Experiment was back in the late 60s, like 1967. Um, but what the Stanford Marshmallow Experiment is, is they take a child of toddler age and they put them in a room and they bring in a single marshmallow and they put that marshmallow on the plate in front of the child and they say, I'm going to leave this marshmallow here and you can eat it now or you can wait until I return and I will give you two marshmallows. Has anyone seen these videos? Okay, so you can go Google these things. They are hilarious. And so, um, and that was the original one. And then it's happened a lot since 1967, just evil parents that want to see how their kid responds, right? And I think it was, I think it made a big uh, resurgence like last year or something. Maybe they all come in different kinds of, of taste. Like it's not always not a marshmallow. But the, the goal is the kid can either wait um, and get to or fulfill, you know, gratification, immediate gratification. And there's some studies from the Stanford one that was like the kids that waited, you know, did higher on their, or made higher scores on their SAT. There's some like weird stuff like that with it. Um, but it's funny to watch the videos and how the kids will react when the adults out of the room and they'll, um, some of them will taste the marshmallows. Some of them will get a tiny little bit. Um, some of them are just all in from the beginning, like it's gone. Um, and so it's funny to watch how the kids respond because none of us are very good at waiting, right? Uh, none of us are good at waiting. Does anyone have the spiritual gift of waiting patiently? Rick Marshall, a few. Don, Don's saying yes. Susan's saying no. <laughs> spiritual gift of waiting patiently. There's not very many of us that have that. I, if you're like me, I kind of hate to wait, right? Um, I hate to wait on stuff. I kind of want it to happen now. Um, here's some examples of that. Um, I, uh, so Dr. Beach is our family doctor, so this is not on him. Um, but usually in my past experiences, when I had to go to the doctor, I would not want to go to the doctor because I didn't want to do what? Wait in the waiting room. I never have, I understand the spelling's different and all that, but I've never understand why we label people patients that are waiting for the doctor. The last thing we have is patience while we're waiting. But I don't have to, I won't have to wait on stuff. And so unless I've got like a missing limb or something, I'm probably not going to go until I actually have to. Uh, Dr. Beach is not that way. If you want to go see Dr. Beach, you can get right in if you're his pastor. <laughs> The rest of you are in trouble, I can tell you. No. Um, so waiting in the doctor's office. Um, I, I've been reminded recently with Levi, who's now toddler age. I got the three olders that got through this season, but now with Levi. takes a lot of patience as a parent, trying to wait on them to learn how to do things and try to teach Levi how to write letters and things like that. He likes to write people birthday cards, and so we'll kind of tell him what to write, giving him an example of what to write, and then trying to help him understand how to write neatly. You know, I'm the dad standing in the background going, that P is going up too high. You're not going to have room. You're not going to have room for the rest of the word. You made your B too big. We're never going to get birthday in this card. <laughs> so waiting, right? One of the words that we use with him a lot, I used it this morning on the way to church, is son, you need to learn to be patient, right? You need to learn to be patient. Um, I do not do well um, with restaurants all the time. Um, I don't want to wait to get to my table. 
Um, I don't want to wait on them to come take my order. I don't want to have to wait on the food. I don't want to have to wait on my check when it's over. And then it dawned on me one day, it's like um, we, you know, want to enjoy going out to eat, but I spend half my time trying to get out of there as quickly as possible. There's something ironic about this. And so my wife has done a great job helping me learn to savor the moments in those type of environments and to be patient. I don't like waiting in traffic. I don't like sitting in traffic. I'm the guy that's like, if I'm in this lane and I think I can get there one second earlier in this lane, I'm putting on my signal and trying to get in to that lane. And then I have a car in my sight that's like, okay, we were side by side. Now that guy's at least four cars ahead of me, so I need to be in that lane, right? Are you with me on this? And so waiting in traffic, I'm not good at these things. We hate to wait. And yet, the scriptures are filled with instructions and stories on patience and waiting and self-control. It is part of Christian living, and literally there are hundreds of examples in scripture. As a matter of fact, patience and self-control are a part of the fruit of the Spirit. While waiting is not always easy in these kind of trivial matters that I have mentioned, it gets even stickier when it comes to big events in life. Sickness, a wayward child, the why question moments of life, loss, death, suffering, unanswered prayers. These are moments, big life moments, where waiting gets very sticky because it challenges us, doesn't it? It challenges our faith, our belief in God, our patience as followers of Jesus. And Paul is inviting us, and he's inviting the Romans specifically in this text, to live in between these two worlds of the now and the then with patience. With patience. Specifically, Paul is discussing, if you've been here the last few weeks, he's discussing patience that's kind of framed in this context of suffering and is patience that is grounded in hope. And so this idea of suffering but hope. And he reminds us, he reminded us last week, that suffering is the path to glory for the follower of Jesus. Matter of fact, it is the path that Jesus traversed. Look at verse 12 again from last week. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. I will mention this verse again in a few moments. The spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. And here it is, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. So there's this life perspective that suffering is the path to glory. And this suffering that leads to glory perspective naturally provokes the question, is suffering worth it? Is it worth it? Is suffering worth it? And Paul responds to that question. He responds to it in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul says here, and I mentioned 1 Corinthians last week, that suffering is momentary, right? 
Suffering is light in comparison to the eternal weight of the glory that awaits those who are in Christ. And then as we saw last week, Paul contends even creation itself is broken and awaiting eagerly the final redemption of God's people. He used that word groan. That creation groans in anticipation for the final day that it will be set free from its bondage to decay. Look at 19 through 22 again. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. We, as Ash mentioned, this week has been a, a week of reflection upon what happened 20 years ago. And as we were kind of watching some of those uh, documentaries or um, clips about things that happened around 9-11, I was reminded of these verses. That creation groans, it longs, and anticipates for that final day of redemption when evil is eradicated, when the world that has been broken and, and marred by sin is redeemed and set free. Now, we don't have to worry about evil invading the space, right? We don't have to worry about evil acts. We don't have to worry about creation itself with the, the brokenness and the sin and the disease and all the things that we deal with. And Paul says that the creation groans in those moments. And then he evokes this hope language. All this is happening in the context of hope. And then he turns it personal in our text today in verse uh, 23 as he turns it from creation um, to us. Look at 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. So Paul makes it personal. Not only is creation groaning, Paul says, but we ourselves, followers of Jesus, we ourselves groan inwardly. And what that means is that we, we can't escape the brokenness. We don't get to opt out. There's no get out of suffering free card. We groan, we suffer, we hurt. This, this is not the kind of Disney World um, orphan Annie philosophy, right? That the sun will come out tomorrow, like put your chin up. Well, kind of, but the sun might not come out tomorrow. You might be still going through some stuff. The suffering might go on for a season. Or I like how the, uh, the old hymn, At the Cross, uh, At the Cross says, uh, one of the taglines in it is, and now I am happy all the day. Well, not really. There's days I'm not really happy, right? Because of the brokenness, because of the suffering, because of the groaning. And so what Paul's teaching is, is that the hope, that hope happens in the brokenness. That hope happens in the in-between, between now and then that we groan in anticipation of the final redemption of our bodies, that we wait eagerly for our final adoption. And it's very common for Paul to utilize this um, kind of already we are adopted and not yet language throughout all of his writings, that we're, kinda, we're already secure in Christ, but we're not yet there. Now we saw in verse 15, that we are, have already been adopted. We are, are spiritually adopted already into God's family as His sons and daughters. That our uh, spiritual adoption is secure. 
As a matter of fact, in this verse that we just read, when he uses this first fruits language uh, of the Holy Spirit, uh, this is a reference to the idea in his other writings that the Holy Spirit is our guarantee, that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit, that the idea of the first fruits is that we have been indwelled by the Holy Spirit of God, and we are guaranteed our security in uh, the, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, that He is the first fruit. He is the top evidence that we are children of God, that the Holy Spirit is kind of this down payment. He's the down payment who guarantees our eternal redemption. And yet, in this verse, Paul just says, we are waiting our final adoption. In other words, spiritually, we have our adoption is secure. Physically, we're still waiting, right? We are waiting for our bodies to be redeemed. So we live in this kind of in-between. The already, we are secure in God through the Holy Spirit. And this not yet, we're still living in these physical bodies. We have not been fully adopted in the sense of our physical bodies have not been adopted into redemption. Already, not yet. And in between those two worlds is where hope resides. Hope comes in between the world of the temporary and the eternal, the world of the now and the then. That is where hope resides. And it is during this in-between season that like creation, we groan. We groan with discomfort. We groan with longing. We anticipate eagerly. I told you last week that the, the, the Greek word that's used here is the idea of standing on your tiptoes, waiting for something, stretching your neck out to see. Paul says we are anticipating. We're standing on our tiptoes, longing for this final redemption. We wait patiently. To simplify it, we live in the brokenness, the world in which we live is broken. We live in the brokenness as people of hope. We are people of hope. Look how Paul builds on this in verse 24. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. We are frail and mortal creatures. We are subject to the brokenness. So we groan. We ache. We hurt. We groan for our final redemption. Yet, because we are in Christ, we groan differently than those who are outside of Christ. Because our groaning is grounded. It's not grounded in despair. It's not grounded in emptiness. It's not grounded in hopelessness. It is a faith-based hope. So when we use the word hope here, it's not some wishful thinking hope. The hope that is New Testament hope is a confidence. It is the confident belief that God is working all things for our good and for his purposes, we'll get to verse 28 soon, Romans 8, 28, uh, that God is working all things. And it is this confident belief that God is at work. As humans, we tend to trust in what we can experience, right? We tend to trust in what we can see, what we can hear, what we can feel, 
what we can grasp, that's usually what we put our trust in. But we can use our senses, those are the things that we trust. We put our faith and trust in the things that we can sense and feel and experience in life. And yet Paul makes this reference here that our hope is not grounded in any of those things. It's not about what we can see. That hope trusts in what we cannot see. As a matter of fact, he says, I mean, who hopes in what they can see? Once you can see it, it's disqualified from being hope. That hope is grounded in faith, which the Hebrews writer, right? Hebrews 11.1, 1, the big definition of, of faith in the Bible. Uh, he says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the confidence of things that we have not seen. If you can see it, if you can figure it out, if you can resolve it, if you can find the answer, then there's no need for hope. There's no need for faith. Faith is trusting God even when we can't see it, when we can't figure it out, when we can't resolve it, when we can't find all the answers. Faith is at times trusting God when it does not even make sense to trust Him. Faith and hope. Our hope is built on this foundation of faith. And faith-based hope is waiting patiently, Paul says. Enduring, waiting patiently all the way to the end. Let me see if I can explain it this way in a way we can understand. I like to say that, that faith, as we're describing here, that faith-based hope is this kind of long arc living. Let me explain what I mean by that. Long arc living. Um, if you're a person that enjoys uh, movies or books or book series in particular, the best type of movies or books or whatever form of entertainment um, that you are engaged in um, is, is things that take a, a, a while to kind of lay out the plot for you, right? Uh, my favorite type, I'm a big reader, my favorite type of books when I read like novels or those type of books is that I don't figure out what's going on until the end, until the final chapter. It keeps me engaged all the way to the final chapter, right? Uh, the best movies are not the ones that kind of, here's the plot in the first 15 minutes. The best movies are those that keep you engaged all the way to the end of the storytelling. Whether it's a single movie or a series of movies or a single book or a series of books, sometimes those are the most difficult ones because you're, like, you're waiting for the next season to come out or you're waiting for the next book to be released. It's long arc living, that the arc of the story is long. It's not short. It's not immediate. Faith-based hope is long arc living. It is living for the long. It is living for the end there's this tension that's not resolved until the end. Long arc living. Trusting that God is in control. That God is working His perfect plan. All the way to the end, to that final redemption, when the tension will be resolved. Long arc living. Over and over again, the Scripture says, remain steadfast to the end. Hang in there, right? We'll be going through the book of Hebrews on our a Wednesday night study. Over and over, I mean, the entire book of Hebrews is written with this concept of like, hold on uh, to your confession of faith. 
that faith and hope are joined at the hip, that we have hope because we trust God, we believe in who He is, we believe in what He is doing, which enables us to wait with patience and the confidence that God will complete what He started. And the Holy Spirit has taken up residence inside of us to guarantee that that consummation, that that end game will take place. Hope declares the waiting is worth it. It's worth it. Hope believes the wait is worth it. Here's why. Because the futility does not win. Brokenness does not have the final word. Suffering is not the conclusion. It's not the final chapter. Hope believes that the groaning gives way to glory. That suffering gives way to salvation. That brokenness gives way to redemption. That futility gives way to wholeness and completion. And so when we face life's big events, like we talked about earlier, when we face life's big events, the unexpected sickness, the wayward child, the why questions of life, the unanswered prayer moments, the loss, the death, the suffering. We, we do so with the faith and confidence that God is in control, that my suffering is light and momentary compared to the glory that awaits those who are in Christ, and that gives me hope. That's what hope is. Don't buy into the myth that if you live right, whatever that means, that you will avoid suffering. Don't buy into the philosophy, this kind of a grin too much, groan too little philosophy. Don't buy into this grin too much, groan too little, superficial, distorted way of thinking. That myth is a lie. And it will cause you to either live with this facade where you're constantly trying to put on a front like everything's okay all the time. Church people are the worst, aren't we? Like showing up at church, our life's falling apart in the background. People are like, how are you? Oh, I'm doing awesome. God bless. Thanks for asking. Hashtag blessed, right? We're the worst. We live with this facade. We're smiling all the time, pretending things are great. I'm doing wonderful, sister. Right? Life's falling apart in the background. And kind of this grin too much, grown too little, superficial way of living is a myth. It's a lie. It will leave you with this constant fear of failing or this uncertainty of whether you're doing just enough to keep God happy. If you buy into that, it will control your life. Am I doing enough to please God? To make him happy. You see, waiting around the corner with a gotcha. Suffering is a part of our reality. It is a part of our story. And we can't leave out those chapters. But faith-based hope reminds us suffering is leading to glory. That our story, with all the chapters, including the chapters on suffering, our story is like the life of Jesus. It ends in resurrection. It ends in final redemption. Paul says in these verses, there is a physical adoption, a physical redemption coming. And our bodies groan for it. Can I get an amen on that? If you're 20s and 30s right now, just shh, wait. 
Don't even amen right now. Just hold on. It's coming for you. Our physical bodies groan. They groan. Waiting for that final redemption. As I've crossed age milestones, I realize how much more frail and fragile my body is. This week, my hand and up into my arm is just hurting and filled with pain. I'm like, what is going on? Like, am I, what, am I 90 at this point? Is this one of the itis people moving in on me, like arthritis or tendonitis or something going on? Um, I think it's because I type too much. Um, but our age, our age testifies that we groan. By the way, I haven't gone to the doctor um, with my arm hurting because I don't want to sit in the waiting room. Um, <laughs> can I have five minutes right after the service? <laughs> our bodies, these redeemed bodies in our final physical adoption, they will not get sick. They will not hurt. They will not sin. They will not struggle with weight gain, right? Like packed on to all the stress that's been going on with the building. I get on the scale of like packed on 20 pounds. What's going on? I couldn't intentionally gain 20 pounds when I was in my 20s. I just know in heaven it's going to be like whatever you want to eat, no weight gain, right? I'm just like one long marriage supper of the lamb is just like a pizza buffet, right? It's like just eat it and go. Um, or what I'm afraid is going to happen is my taste buds are going to change. God's going to redeem my taste buds and all the things I don't like now, uh, whatever is in that category of the broccolis and the cauliflowers of the world, suddenly I'm going to be madly in love with those things. Like these things are awesome. I tell Ash all the time, I wished I liked those things. Like it would help so much to want to eat in a healthy way if I like that. I, I'm jealous of her. She enjoys eating those things. I'm just choking them down, right? What can I drink to choke this sucker down? Can I dip in ketchup or how can I get this down, right? I don't know what's going to happen in the end, but I know that our bodies who are groaning now with sin and suffering and the things that we struggle with will be redeemed. We will have redeemed, resurrected, renewed, restored bodies. Now, when we think that, it's not like I'm going to go back to my 20s. This is a resurrected body that looks a lot like the resurrected body of Jesus. So whatever that looks like, uh, we'll know when we get there. Uh, Joni Erickson Tata, uh, you may have heard her name before. Um, she was uh, paralyzed as a teenager in a diving accident. And she's lived as a quadriplegic now for 50-plus years. And she has uh, such a remarkable uh, testimony of faith in Jesus. But I, I read this quote from her uh, that she wrote. I love this quote that illustrates what we're talking about. Um, Joni Erickson Tata said, when I get to heaven, I'm going to push my wheelchair to the throne of Jesus. Notice I'll be walking. I'm going to thank him for every character refining work that he did in me and through me because of this wheelchair. And then I love what she says here. And then I'm going to ask Jesus to send this wheelchair straight to hell because it was only needed because of the wreckage of sin in my life, the brokenness. We groan, don't we? In the meantime, we stand alongside all of creation in eager anticipation on our tiptoes, patiently waiting 
in hope, knowing our final adoption is guaranteed. We wait patiently for the realization of our hope. When our faith gives way to sight, we, we are given the assurance in these verses that these first fruits will be followed by the harvest, that bondage will be followed by freedom, that decay will be followed by redemption, that labor pains end in birth. That is the promise and the assurance that Paul provides us in these verses. And so the kind of big so what of these texts is, of this of this text is that the correct posture for those who are in Christ living in the brokenness is not one of despair, it's not one of anguish, it's not one of misery, it's not one of fear. We live with a posture of hope. We are people of hope. We wait eagerly and patiently. Not so eager that we lose patience, not so patient that we lose the sense of anticipation. Instead, we live as people with a faith-based hope that enables us to keep the groanings in perspective. By the way, let me liberate you here. Frustration during this in-between is natural. Groaning is not pleasant. Suffering is not enjoyable. Pain is not pleasurable. We exist in a tension. A tension of already, we are guaranteed in the Holy Spirit, and not yet. Our final adoption is still to come. But we live in this tension with the hope that comes in following Jesus. Here's what is key for us as followers. Hope will deliver. Hope will come through. Hope has the final word. Because here's what the gospel says. For the Christian, our hope is not in circumstances. Our hope is not things will kind of turn in our favor. Our hope is not the right politician will get elected. Our hope is not this party's in control. Our hope is not this person does this and all these things come together in this way. Our hope does not rest in any of these earthly kingdom things that we tend to focus on. Our hope is in a person. Our hope is in Jesus and Jesus alone. That is where our hope rests. Our hope is in a person named Jesus. And by the way, he is eagerly patient with us. Come to me, Jesus invites. Cast your cares on me. Place your burdens on me. Bring your anxieties to me. I care for you. And we tend to wear the weight ourselves. We tend to take our cares and concerns and anxieties and fears to others. We tend to bury them deep inside. And Jesus is eagerly patient. Embraces invitation. Come to me, he says. Cast your cares on me. I care for you. Isn't it awesome that Jesus is big enough to bear the cares of all of his followers. There's no like take a ticket, you know, no DMV, like you're number 72 in line. It's like, bring your cares to me. One time I was preaching that first Peter text on this, where this passage is taken from, bring your cares and burdens to me. And I said, Jesus is the great care bear. Wait, that doesn't sound right. Remember care bears? <laughs> it's like a Jesus care bear. He's got a little cross here. Um, 
Jesus will bear all the cares of his people. Come to me. Embrace his invitation. As long as we live in this broken world, life will be filled with groans. But our groaning is not disconnected from our Savior. It is not disconnected from Jesus. He experienced the suffering. He experienced the pain. He experienced the hurt. He experienced the betrayal. He experienced the loss. He experienced the brokenness on His road to glory. And it is because He became one of us and suffered as one of us and died as one of us that we can have full confidence and hope of the glory that awaits. His resurrection guarantees our resurrection. And in the meantime, the in-between time, we hope. We hope in the groaning. And we wait patiently and eagerly for our final redemption, knowing that not one moment of our suffering is wasted. Not one moment is wasted in the plans and purposes of our good and gracious God. And so we fix our eyes on Jesus. We fasten our eyes on Jesus. He is the author and finisher of our faith. That, that not one instance, not one moment of our suffering is not for the purpose of our good and His glory. That He has walked the path before us. I posted this week the song by Shane and Shane. It was the song that we used for the transition today. Um, the song title is, Though You Slay Me. This verse is Job 13, 15, and the song was written by one of the artists, Shane Bernard, of the two, Shane and Shane. He wrote this song after his dad died unexpectedly, and when they released the song, one of my favorite preachers, John Piper, has a, has a clip in the middle of the song. If you ever watched or heard Piper preach, he's all like, all in. Um, like Mr. Passion, and he, he gets me going um, when he preaches. But in the, the middle of this song is this Piper clip, um, and I want to read you um, from one of Piper's sermons what he says uh, that is used in the song, uh, Though He Slay Me. Here's what Piper says about this text. Not only is all your affliction momentary, not only is it light in comparison to eternity and the glory there, but every second of it is totally meaningful. Every millisecond of your misery in the path of obedience is producing a peculiar glory that you will get because of that suffering. I don't care if it was cancer or criticism or slander or sickness. It wasn't meaningless. It's doing something. Of course, you can't always see what it's doing. Don't look to what is seen. When your mom dies, when your child dies, when you've got cancer at 40, when a car careens into the sidewalk and takes her out, we don't say that's meaningless. It's not. It's working for you an eternal weight of glory. Therefore, don't lose heart. Take these truths and day by day focus on them. Preach them to yourself every morning. Get alone with God and preach His Word into your mind until your heart sings with confidence that you are known and cared for by God. That is hope. That we have hope. And His name is Jesus. Jesus.